week? So how y'all gonna do me like that? I didn't hear people say my name very much. And who would win in a fist fight between me and Steven? Are we gonna talk about that? Well, hey, um, I'm pumped for round three, the final round of the games we play. And um, I might not be able to fight, but I'm gonna throw a verbal knockout punch today, all right? It's gonna be good. I'm excited to jump into this. Um, I've titled today's message, Quit Playing Games With Your Heart. You guessed it, a prophetic message from the Backstreet Boys. I want for you to turn to your neighbor real quick and say, quit playing games with your heart. You get extra credit if you'll sing it to your neighbor real quick. Quit playing games with your heart. Oh, yeah, I love it, baby. A little millennial action up in here. Quit playing games with your heart. Um, when I was in high school, I played this game with my friends called The Game. And the game is the dumbest game that you will ever play in your life, okay? Um, and it, as soon as you know about the game, you're playing the game, and so you're all a part of this weird club now, you're welcome. Um, here's the way the game works. If you think about the game, you lose the game. They just lost the game, right? So if you think about the game, you lose the game. That's it. That's the way that the game works. And so my friends and I in high school, we'd be sitting around doing whatever high school boys do. And the game would pop into one of our minds and we'd go, I lost the game. And then everybody else would freak out, lose their minds, because then we'd think about the game, which would make us lose the game. And so we used to joke about getting, um, I won the game engraved on our tombstones because it's the only way to win the game, right? Die not thinking about the game. Um, and so like even to this day, I'll text one of the friends who I was in high school with, who pl I played the game with, I'll text them like I lost the game and they'll lose their minds. Like it will evoke fury. Recently, I text one of my friends um, who we used to play the game with. I just texted him, I said, hey bro, I lost the game. And he texts back and I quote, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Do you worship the devil? It evoked so much fury, this stupid, dumb game that we were playing that was all about not thinking about the game. And as I was preparing for this week and I was thinking about the game, which I've lost a lot this week, it started to make me realize how similar that game is with the game we play with our hearts. So many of us think that if we cannot think deeply about the stuff that's going on in our hearts, that we could still somehow win at this game called life. We think that if we could fill our lives with enough busyness, enough noise, enough stuff, if we could distract ourselves long enough and numb ourselves deep enough that maybe we don't have to think about what's going on in our heart, that we could still win at this game called life. And I think it's one of the dumbest games that we humans play with our hearts. And what I believe that God brought me here to tell you this morning is to quit playing games with your heart. Quit playing games with your heart. It's too important. There's too much at stake. This is the reason that King David, who's called a man after God's own heart, takes his heart so seriously. Like he, he takes his heart really seriously. Unless you think that this is just like some woman, emotional, introspective business to care about your heart, I want you to know that King David killed 200 men, cut off their man business, and gave it to his wife's father as a dowry, okay? So he's a man and he cares deeply about what's going on in his heart. That's why he prays in Psalms 51.10. He says, create in me a clean heart, oh God. God, clean out my heart 
and renew a right spirit within me. I love that David prays and asks God, clean out my heart, clean it out, clean out the closet of my heart. A couple of months ago, my wife, Kayla, who couldn't be more opposite than me, um, she got really hooked on this Netflix show called um, The Life-Changing Power of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. And I've gotta be real with you guys, when I read that title, all I could think is, who would ever watch that? How many of you guys are familiar with this, with Marie Kondo, The Art of Tidying Up? Okay, great, awesome, we know who to pray for. Very, very cool. Um, this, this whole idea is so funny. The whole idea here um, is about what sparks joy for you, okay? And so you clean out your closet or you clean out a drawer and what Marie says is the way that you define, the way that you determine what you keep and what you get rid of is you find out what sparks joy. And the way that you, spark joy, you find, find out is you take every item and you hold it in your hand and you ask of that item, We're talking to our clothes now. Do you spark joy? And if it does spark joy within you, you keep the item. And if it doesn't spark joy within you, you get rid of the item. And I had the same response when my wife was doing this that you had. Like, I laughed. And she goes, don't laugh, boy. Your closet's next. And... uh I was like, baby girl, if we do this with my closet, all that's gonna be left is like a Steph Curry basketball jersey and a pair of boxers, okay? Like that's it. And ain't nobody wanna see me preaching just that, you know? So we don't wanna do this with my closet. But, but then it got me wondering like how true that would be for many of us. Like if we decluttered our heart, if we cleaned out our heart, would there be anything left that actually brought joy? If you were to open up your insides, examine your heart, clean it out, and see all of the stuff that we cram it full, fill it with, the stuff that is near and dear and utmost to us, if we were to pull it out and ask the question, do you bring joy, would we find anything in there that actually does? This is why David asks God to clean out his heart. It's why he continues in Psalm 139, and he says, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David asks God, he goes, search my heart. Like I want for you to get inside, like look in there, see if there's any grievous way in me. He asks God to play a game of operation with his heart. Y'all remember the game of operation? Y'all remember this game? How weird was this game? Like the part, the things that was in this man's body was concerning to say the least. And the way that operation works is, you know, you would get these little tweezers that were like the size, like, like Tinkerbell could use them. And you would have to try to operate on this guy and get stuff out. And then you'd touch the edge and like, it would beep at you so loud, his nose would go red. You'd pee your pants to change your drawers. And you'd try to perform operation on this guy, right? You'd try to get out the things that weren't supposed to be there and put things back in order. David goes, God, I want you to play operation on me. I want you to search me and see if there's stuff in me that shouldn't be there, that doesn't belong. And if it's in my heart, get it out. Get it out. Operate on me, oh God. You know that King Solomon, who's the wisest man who's ever been, he's said to be the wisest man to ever live on earth. He says this in Proverbs, Proverbs 4.23. He says, above all else, guard your heart. 
for everything you do flows from it. The wisest man who's ever been says, hey, I've got one tip for you. Like if you're gonna listen to my one life hack, my one piece of wisdom, the, the, the one thing above all else that you've gotta do, you've gotta guard your heart like a goalie in soccer, guarding the goal, protecting it at all costs, willing to lay everything on the line, sacrifice your face for your heart. Guard it at all costs. Why? Because everything you do flows from it. What goes on in your heart determines the direction of your life. What goes on in your heart determines the direction of your life. What we fill this with is what's going to determine the kind of life that we have. Y'all, that at least deserves like a Baptist head nod or something. You know what I'm saying? Like preaching way better than y'all are responding. Everything you do flows from your heart. This is why Jesus, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what's the most important rule in this game called life? What's the most important rule? Like what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says that the greatest commandment in Matthew 22 is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. What Jesus wants you to know is that the object of the game of life is to love God with all your heart, for him to have your heart, control your heart, for him to be utmost and primary, for him to be first and foremost, for him to be ultimate and not secondary. He wants your heart, is on a mission for your heart. And so let me ask you today, how's your heart How's your soul? Like if you'd slow down long enough and quit playing the game of trying to not think about it and just fill your life with more progress and busyness and stuff, if you'd stop for just a second scrolling through social media to see if you could find something that would make you feel alive, if you could just stop and slow down and ask yourself the question, how's my heart? Are my relationships feeling deep? Do I feel like I'm at peace in my soul? Am I walking in my purpose, confident in my calling? Am I secure? Is there joy, delight, fulfillment, satisfaction, or is it never enough? That's a little greatest showman, people, come on. Is it never enough? Is it always one more thing? Is it always something else? Is it always another job? Is it always another account? Is it always another pair of shoes? Is it always another purchase? Is it always the next step? Is it just five more years? Is it always another website? Like what, is it never enough for you? Do you find yourself just cramming it full, more stuff, more busyness, more comfort, more food, another vacation, just cramming it full to find that it's never enough? If, if that's how you feel, I want you to know you're not alone. You're not alone. Did you know that uh, antidepressant use is up 64%? Did you know that suicide is up 24% since, you know, just 1999? Something's wrong with our heart. We've been playing games with our heart. And what has happened to you and what happens to me is that when we're playing this game of trying to not pay attention to our heart, cramming it full of stuff and busyness and life and in America, our heart ends up getting hijacked without us ever realizing it, without us ever seeing it. Have you ever played the game King of the Castle? Maybe you called it like King of the Hill or King of the Mountain in your neighborhood. You ever played this game? All right, y'all need to get out more, okay? It's a, 
It's a pretty fun game, all right? Most people play it like in a pool, in a swimming pool. There's like a float, you know, that somebody's sitting on. And there's this all-out battle, this war to try to get on top of the flow. And like in most neighborhoods, it's pretty civilized. Like tackle each other, pull each other. Like my neighborhood, the neighborhood I grew up in, it was vicious, okay? They'd bite you if you were on the float. Um, they do whatever it takes. They'd embarrass you, pull off your drawer, show everybody what your mama gave you, okay? Like it was an all-out war to get on top of this float, do you know that there is a war being fought to get on top of your heart right now? There is this ongoing, eternal, everyday war that is being waged for your heart. And your enemy, he is vicious. He is cunning and crafty and creative. He is sly, seductive, and sneaky. He will do whatever it takes to distract you, to make sure that anything else is sitting on the throne of your heart so that King Jesus isn't. Because your heart is a throne. That's the thing about our heart. That's the reason God doesn't want to play games with it, because it's not a game to be played. It's a war to be waged. There's a war to be fought for our hearts. Because whoever's sitting on our heart, whatever we place on our heart, determines the direction of our life. It rules our kingdom, determines the state of our existence, whether we're at peace or whether we're at war. And so there is this ongoing war that's been fought for your heart. And Jesus isn't playing games about wanting to be the king who's crowned. He's not playing games about wanting to sit on it. And what we don't realize is that in effort to not think about our heart, somebody else ends up sitting on our heart. Something else ends up sitting on our heart. Something else ends up becoming primary. And God is so passionate about you realizing that he wants to be first. This is the reason that when God gave Moses like the original rules for the game of life, like the 10 commandments, y'all remember those? 10 of them, the very first one, the first one, he's like the first rule, the first instruction in this game called life, the first of the 10 commandments is this. Exodus 20, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm first, I'm on the throne, I'm in your heart. I'm what you care about most. And notice these are heart statements he makes before he tells you that he wants your heart. He goes, I'm the Lord your God. I'm yours. I'm your God. I'm for you. I created you. Love you. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? I rescued you out of the house of slavery. I gave you freedom, took you out of bondage, kept you from having to be slave to these things. You shall have no other gods before me. I've done everything to win your heart. Now let me sit on the throne of your heart. But slowly, and subtly, something happens, we get distracted, and all these other gods start to creep in. And so Paul, in the New Testament, he's warning people, like, viciously to, to pay attention to their hearts. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now, biblically, there are two sins that you're called to flee from, to run away from. Like, you know, some sins, it's like, all right, I can kind of, like, hang around here, chill, like, just don't do it, but I can be around it. Idolatry? No, it's one of the two that says run away from. Don't even surround yourself with. Don't even get close to. Flee it. Idolatry, this, this having a God sit on your heart that isn't God. This is why John in 1 John chapter 5 says this. Dear children, keep, or a, or a better word would be guard, guard the same way that you're supposed to guard your heart. Guard yourselves from idols sitting on the throne of your heart. It's a war to be fought. And God doesn't want anybody sitting on that throne other than him. 
He wants to be first. He, he wants to be primary. He doesn't want anything or anybody sitting on the throne of our heart. Did you know that the word heart actually appears 726 times in the Bible? 726 times. The word heart appears in the Bible more than heaven. So God is more concerned with what's going on in your heart than getting you into heaven. The word heart appears in the Bible more than hell. So there should be more fear around what's going on in our heart than what's happening in hell. The word heart appears more than grace, faith, forgiveness, prayer. According to all my studies, I found that the word heart appears more in the Bible than any word other than a word for God. Which makes sense because it's a book all about him. But what he's saying from beginning to end is he wants your heart. And he doesn't want you to give it to anything else. He doesn't want to, you to give your heart to an idol, to allow your heart to become this throne that another king sits on, to be allowed to become an altar that another idol is, is, is placed upon. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, whoa, 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 Joey, I don't have any idols. What are you talking about? Idols. I don't got no idols. I'm into your house, but my house, we ain't got no decorated monkeys, okay? Like there's no shrines to Justin Bieber's at my place, okay? No shrines, no weird temple worship, no seances, no songs being sung, no chants being performed. There are no idols. Oh, really? Really? You ain't got no idols? And I know what you're saying. You're saying that you don't have any idols like the ones that I saw in India or Indonesia. You don't have those ornate temples. You don't have, you know, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. I get that. But you got idols. You got idols who are sitting on the throne of your heart, don't you? I heard this analogy and I just thought it was so perfect to paint the picture of the idols that we have on our hearts and I couldn't help but use it. So I want for you to think for a second, okay? Go with me on this journey. I want for you to imagine that you lived in another country, one foreign to this one, doesn't understand American culture and you have the opportunity to spend a week in Alpharetta during the fall. You come on a Sunday morning and you observe many people making their way to this building that they call a church. Many of them are groggily approaching the building for some sort of ceremony. Clearly, whatever happens at the beginning of the ceremony isn't important because they don't show up until after it's started. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm just saying As they begin to file in, they mouth words to songs, many of them expressionless, emotionless, after which they sit down and passively listen to someone talk to them for a period of time. You notice people start to get a bit fidgety as the time for the ceremony comes to an end. When it's finally over, they quickly walk out, and as they walk out, you hear them talking to each other about something that happened the previous day. They smile and laugh as they recount another ceremony, another one that they'd been to, one that's a bit more exciting than this one. In fact, the rest of the week, that's all you hear people talk about, the upcoming Saturday ceremony. The people from the Sunday ceremony are strangely silent about all they heard and sang about, but they can't stop talking about the Saturday ceremony. And they, they just feel like Saturday can't get here soon enough. And so your curiosity has peaked. What is this Saturday ceremony? And so Saturday comes and 
You watch as people wake up early. They leave their homes wearing costumes, many of their faces being painted. Their fingers have suddenly gotten larger and they head to this ceremony. Many of them travel an hour north to get to a ceremony. About a dozen or so others go an hour south. <laughs> Georgia Tech fans, you got that one? And much to your surprise, they get there early for this ceremony, really early. And at this ceremony, there's drinking and games and food and fun. And it's not just happening with family members or friends. It's complete strangers. This is community like you've never seen before. And so as the time for the ceremony to begin approaches, tens of thousands of people enter this shrine together. You don't know another word for it. And as they go in, they all raise their voices with passion to applaud some sort of assembly of children that they do not know playing a game on a field. They almost lose their voices. They're so engulfed in what they're seeing and experiencing that they get excited when the game is going to what they call overtime. They're not upset when the service runs long. This is the sign of a really great game. The amazing thing is that you learn that it's not just these people who are at the ceremony celebrating, but that there's thousands of other people who are back home in Alpharetta watching the same ceremony on their TVs that could be the size of a movie screen. TVs that are designed to watch ceremonies just like this one. And they high five and jump and celebrate. And when it's all over, late in the evening, almost as if there's nothing to be prepared for the next day, they go to bed. Let me ask you a question. If you were that visitor from another country and you came to this city on a weekend in the fall, what religion would you identify as being most important to this people? What king would be sitting on the throne of their heart? What idol might they be worshiping? Oh, we've got idols. Sports, war for our attention, war for our affection, war for our hearts. They've been given precedent over everything what rules your wallet? What rules your weekend? We have given an unbelievable amount of power to soccer. 11-year-old girl soccer determines our calendar, determines our schedule, determines our Sunday morning. But if we're honest, it's not just sports, is it? The great theologian John Calvin said this. He said that our hearts, well, it's a perpetual idol factory. The human heart will take anything and everything and turn it into an object of worship. 
Your heart is a throne and something's got to sit on it. And so you'll turn anything into an idol. Even the good things that God gives us, we have a way of turning into idols as the object of our worship. It's crazy. God will bless us. He'll be this good father who gives us good gifts. And all of a sudden, we're more obsessed with the gifts than we are the giver. And when a good thing becomes a God thing, it's a very bad thing. Very bad. When we take this good stuff that God has given us and make it ultimate, make it supreme, make it primary, make it the focus. Like I've seen the good pursuit of wanting to provide for your family turn into this idol that is just focused on achieving another financial benchmark. I've seen the good gift of family become this obsessive, controlling idol for people. My wife and I, we've got this, um, this couple friend and they are awesome, we love them, but like they grew up and, and for them, their family was like an idol. Like you didn't miss any family time. Every holiday, you were there. Every family lunch, you were there. You better not miss a birthday. You better like take out a loan to buy your mom a Mother's Day present. Like, like it's a big deal. Like cancel the mission trip to, to, to be at Sunday brunch. This, this family became an idol. And, and let me tell you, that family is in shambles. Chaos. Because family became everything and then family became nothing. Uh, we take these good things that God has given us, the good talents, the good skills, the good gifts, the fact that he's made you smart, the fact that he's given you a job, the fact that he's given you a career, the fact that he's blessed you and put you at the most amazing time to be alive that ever is with more comfort, with more convenience, with more opportunity than ever before. And somehow all these good things, all these blessings have blinded our eyes, taken our focus off of what matters and our hearts have become hijacked by even the good things that God has given us. Like, what's your idol? What's your obsession? What did you wake up this morning and think about first? What consumed your thoughts this last week? What have you said I have to have in order to be happy? Like this determines whether or not my life is valuable and meaningful and exciting and fulfilling. If I don't have this, I don't have life. What have you wrapped your hand around? What good thing has God given you that you've wrapped your hand around and has become non-negotiable? God, do whatever you want. Send me wherever you want, but don't touch this. Don't touch my 401k. Don't touch it. Don't touch my job. Don't touch my dream home. Jesus, get your hands off the shiplap. Don't, like, like, what is it for you? God, don't touch the, don't touch the bins. Not the bins. Don't take it. What, what's your idol? What is the thing that you have determined in your heart that you've got to have in order to be happy? Guys, I fight this same battle with you. I'm not trying to say that I'm not like guilty too, okay? I'm so guilty. Like I can be mastered by money, obsessed over money. I can stress over status about what people think about me, whether or not people know how good I am, how great I am, how gifted I am. I, I fight the same battle, make talent my idol, success my idol. I can get so distracted. It's so easy for these lesser gods to kind of creep in for me very quickly to just break my budget in half because there was something on Amazon Prime and I had to have it. Life wouldn't be complete without it. And it was a flash deal, right? 
My, my wife is the queen of this, okay? She comes home all the time. She's like, oh, Joey, I saved you so much money today. The sale was 50% off. I'm like, baby, I don't know if you know how to do math, but if you spent money, you didn't save me money. But we so easily fall victim to these lesser gods, to these things that are enticing and vying and just seeking and searching for our attention. They wanna sit on the throne of our hearts and man, I fall victim to it too. And it's crazy the way that it just starts to cave in on itself. You know, I, I started playing the game this week. Like I was sick to my stomach because I played the game with myself, the same game that I played with you where I took you on a trip to Alpharetta in the fall. I just like, what if a visitor from a foreign land came and took a trip to my life this week? Who would he say is king of my heart? Who would he sits on who would he say sits on my throne? And, and this week, I'm quite embarrassed to say, it would have been golf. And here's the crazy thing is, I'm horrible at golf. Like really, really bad. Like threw my driver in a lake, and I'm pretty sure it's still there this week, bad. Like I'm bad at golf. But if that visitor would have showed up, it would have seen that I was consumed with golf, watching videos, playing like every other day, thinking about golf, stressing over golf. And here's the crazy thing that happened is I found myself as I'd idolized golf and focused on golf and allowed golf to consume my heart that I started to hate golf, hate it. Like I literally walked out the golf course and there was like this old truck sitting there and I thought about taking my golf clubs, putting them in that truck, getting my car and never playing again. Do you know why? Because what you idolize, whatever you idolize, you will soon demonize. Whatever you idolize, you will soon demonize. Whatever you take and you try to make it give you your desire, you try to get from it what only God can give you, eventually you're going to see that that thing can't deliver on your wants for your soul and your needs for who God created you to be. And so you're gonna start to hate that thing. That's why great spouses make terrible saviors. So why, like you wonder right now why you're frustrated with your wife? God, man, why you do this, I'm frustrated about that. And you, why you're frustrated with your husband? Why are you so mad at your kids? You hate your job, you resent this home, you spend all this money on it, decorated it, but every time you walk in, you just resent it. You wonder, you wonder why? Because what you idolize, you will soon demonize. When you realize that it can't be for you, what only God can be, you'll hate it. So stop falling victim to this trap. You don't wanna hate your marriage. You don't wanna hate these things. Stop letting them be primary. They will hijack your soul. They'll hijack your heart. Like, let's stop playing games for a second. Like, let's just get real with ourselves. Is one more pair of shoes really gonna stop making you feel lonely? Like, is one more piece of cheesecake or one more glass of wine really gonna bring comfort? Are 100 more push-ups gonna make you feel like you're not a failure? Like is, is looking at those images on the computer or watching those videos, is that really gonna help you in your marriage? Is taking your money and worshiping at, with your wealth at the altar of the Avalon to treat yourself really gonna make you feel like enough? Is one more family vacation gonna erase the guilt? Is just one more zero gonna make you feel like a man? Is one more scroll through social media to just, to, to just see how many likes you got, to, to, to see how many followers are there, is that, is, that gonna, is that gonna bring fulfillment? I think we've gotta stop letting idols play games with our hearts because what they do is they betray us, they turn in on us, and they take from us. And so what do we do? Where do we go from here when we're people who are more consumed with our hobbies than our walks with Jesus? 
Where do we go from here when we're people who bow down to the altar of Netflix more than we feast on God's word? Where, where, where do we go from here? I think that we've got to go to a place where we begin to evict idols. We've got to evict idols. Ezekiel chapter 14, um, God talks to the prophet Ezekiel and there's these elders who've been crazy idol worshiping, like Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, idol worshiping. And it's church folk. And they've allowed other things to sit on the throne of their heart, other things to be king for them. And so this is what God says to Ezekiel to tell these people. He says, therefore, speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, anyone of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart, what have we been talking about today? And sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face. What you gotta know is that if you take an idol in your heart, you're setting a stumbling block in your path. It's gonna trip you up. It's gonna cause you to fall. It's gonna keep you from experiencing everything that you want. Like idol in your heart, you're, you're gonna be blinded. You're gonna be blinded. Like right now, some of you don't think that you have idols in your heart. Do you know why? Because you have idols in your heart. And it's blinding you, keeping you from seeing, experiencing, and living the life that God wants you to. He says to any of these people, tell them, and yet comes to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. Now this part is so interesting, okay? He says, so anybody who's got idols and they come to the prophet, tell them to come talk to God, okay? So this is what happens. You see, we come with idolatry in our hearts. We come and the whole week, like we served these other gods. We worshiped other gods because that's the game that we really play with idolatry is mental gymnastics, yeah? Like we say that God is first. We say that God is foremost. But it's really just like lip service, right? It's mental gymnastics. It's like a sentiment of somersaults where we say it so it is. God's first, right? He's first. But nothing in our actions actually prove that he's first, right? But we just act like it's the thought that counts. You ever, you ever said that before? Oh, baby, it's the thought that counts. Girl, you know the thought doesn't count in any relationship. Like try to tell your boss that tomorrow. Don't go to work. I just take my advice on this. Don't go to work. Your boss is gonna call you and just go, hey, yo, I thought about coming into work. It's the thought that counts, right? <laughs> He's gonna go, I hope the thought can count high enough to pay your mortgage. Tell your wife on, on your anniversary, 25 years, hey, baby boo, you're the best. And I know you wanted diamonds, but I'm gonna give you thoughts instead. It's the, thought, it's the thoughts that count. You're gonna be counting the thoughts of sheep on the couch that night, right? Like, that's what's gonna happen. The thought doesn't count in any relationship, but then with God, we act like it does. Nothing in our life indicates that he's first. Nothing in our life indicates that he's foremost. So we worship these other idols throughout the week, and then we come to church on Sunday, and we're like, give me a word. God, I love you, I'm for you. Like, help me out, help my situation, speak in. And so then we come, and we're like, hey, Joey, hey, Stephen, like, drop a word on me, help my life, get it better, when we've been worshiping these other idols. And God says, no, 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 that, that can't happen, that can't work. And the reason that that can't work is you can't worship other idols and then try to put God on the place of your heart because then you just start to treat God the same way you treated these other idols. This is so good, you can't miss this. What happens when we allow idols to sit in our heart and then all of a sudden we try to just oh, we'll put God in there for a day, let him give us some blessing, is we treat God the same way that we've been treating those other idols. We treat him like he's this cosmic servant who's meant to fetch our happiness. And then when he doesn't deliver, on our time frame, give us our desires, our dreams right when we want them. Well, we just throw up our hands. 
Chuck up the deuces, we're out. God, you're not real. You don't love me. You're not good for me. You're not for me. He's saying, no, no, you can't do that. Anybody who's got idols in their heart, don't try to just make God another functional idol. You can't do that. Go talk to him and see what he says. And he says this. He says, I want to lay hold of their hearts. You see, you think I'm coming for your idols today, but what God is really after is your heart. You think I'm trying to take your stuff? I don't want your stuff. I just don't want your stuff to have you. And so God is coming after your heart. After the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols, idols have distanced us from God. And he continues, he says, so this is what you do. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. We've got to evict idols. We got to kick them out. You ever been evicted before? If you have, don't raise your hand. That's embarrassing, right? <laughs> it's not a good day. It's not a good day. Nobody likes to get evicted, but it is painful. It's awkward. And today, it might be painful, it might be awkward, but there's some idols you need to evict. This idea of repentance, of turning away, is moving away from, changing your mind, saying, I'm not gonna think like that, I'm not gonna live like that, I'm not gonna focus on that anymore. I'm gonna move away. It says, turn your face away. You see, a lot of us go, oh, can, can I just let God be first and let my idol be second, like hold on to it too, have my cake and eat it too? Can I do that? No, 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 because if you don't move away from your idols, then they know where you are and they're gonna come looking for you. And they're gonna take you hostage again. They're gonna take control again. They're gonna sit on the throne again. And so there are some things I believe for you and for me that our hands are wrapped around that we have just deemed first world America. We're wealthy. We live in Milton. And so it's okay. We can just have these things. And I think God's going, no, no, no. I think, I think you need to open your hands. I think you need to evict those idols. I think you need to kick them out of your heart. I think you need to do some surgery, remove yourself, distance yourself, move away from idols. The only antidote to the idols in our heart is to get rid of our idols and to get our eyes on God. The only antidote to the idols in our heart is to get rid of our idols and to get our eyes aggressively on God, laser focused on God. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna close out today by just trying to get your eyes on God. Because when, when God gets bigger, your idols get smaller. And the greatest way that we can wage war on idolatry is worship. And this is the reason that Paul in Philippians chapter three, look at what he says, this is so good. This is my hope for you at the end of the service. He says, but whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, whatever money could buy me, whatever my career purchased for me, whatever joy my house brought me, whatever significance my status gave me, whatever gain I had, whatever idol I'd crown, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He's better. For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things, evict every idol, count it as rubbish, dung, trash, throw it away, set it on fire, get rid of it, evict it in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want God to get so big and idols to get so small so that we smash our idols and marvel at the greatness of God. And so I'm just gonna try to overwhelm you with how big God is, with how good God is, and with the way that he's better than every idol that you have ever crowned. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created this. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, my favorite command in the Bible, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. Behold, I've given you every plant. This good God creates everything, gives good gifts to the children that he's created, puts them in a place of paradise. But he keeps on going. I love the king's response in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 8, 23. Oh Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or earth. You keep covenant. You show loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. First Samuel 2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor there is any rock like our God. In a world that is shifting full of sinking sands, an economy that could collapse at any moment, he is the rock to build our lives upon. Jeremiah 10, 6, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and great is your name in might. Isaiah 40, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's taken all the water and all the oceans and all the rivers and all the lakes and all the streams and the same way that we do when we're camping and want a drink of water, put it in his hand. Who has marked off the heavens with a span the way that we go, ah, oh, it's about this big. Who's done that with the galaxies? Be this big Milky Way. Who has measured the weight of the mountains and the scales and the hills and the balance and closed the dust of the earth in a measure? Who's taken all the sands and all the deserts, all the clay and all of Georgia, all the rocks and all our world, all the dirt, and put them on a balancing scale? Who is big enough to do this? And who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? In a world where we've got counselors and we've got mentors and we've got podcasts and we've got self-help books, who helps God? Who, what, what friend does God phone? Who does he go and look to advice from? No one. Why? Because there is no one like our God. To whom then will you liken him? Or what likeness compare him? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He goes camping in our galaxies. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? The Holy One. That word holy in Hebrew is hagios. 
It means other than, set apart, unlike anyone else. There is no one that can be compared with God and no one that rivals God. Right now in heaven, there are these three angels that are encircling the throne of God. Talks about it in Revelation. And all they've been saying from all of eternity's past and all they'll be saying for all eternity's future is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. They're going, there's no one like God. There is no one like God. There is no one like God. No, 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 I don't think you understand. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. No idol compares. No one can stand. There is no one like our God. I want to close with this. Revelation 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and a priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You see, idols, do you know what they do? Idols say sacrifice to me. The idol of money says sacrifice to me, give up your integrity, give up your family, give up your time to get me. The idol of family says sacrifice to me because if you lose me, you lose it all. And so, so give up your peace of mind, give up your sanity, give up your dreams to get family. The idol of lust says sacrifice to me. Sacrifice your marriage on the altar of adultery. Let it pour out as an offering. Sacrifice to me is what idols say. Sacrifice to me. But Jesus doesn't say sacrifice to me. He came as a sacrifice for me so that I wouldn't have to sacrifice my life on the altar of idolatry. There is one God there is one sovereign, there is one king, there is one creator, one rescuer who died on one cross, who rose from one empty grave to be your one and only, to be the king of your heart. Jesus is better than your dream home. He is better than a husband. He is better than a vacation. He is better than everything. And when we wage war and worship, idols get small and God gets big. Can we evict idols from the thrones of our heart today? And can we crown Jesus the righteous King? We're gonna close today by singing to him. I invite you to stand as we lift up the one great God of the universe. Let's sing together.